Welcome to the Ackerman Center podcast. As a digital extension of the Ackerman Center, our goal is to teach the past so we can change the future. In doing so, we address issues related to the Holocaust, genocide, and human rights studies from diverse perspectives. Good afternoon. We're back here with The Years. Those are the podcasts where everyone is dedicated to one of the years of the Third Reich, beginning with 1933 and concluding with 1945. Good afternoon. Here we are again, one more time, um, continuing our series on what we call The Years. Today, uh, we are here to talk about 1944. And once again, I am particularly thrilled to be here. As you said, we're talking about 1944 in this episode, and we have chosen an event that is a very interesting one because it's something that's a little less visible on the international stage than some of our previous topics. Um, we're going to talk about how um, near the end of 1944, Himmler orders the halt of the final solution and the destruction of gas chambers at Auschwitz-Birkenau. We're going to hear now a little bit from our newspaper article. The Times, Review of the Year, Monday, January 3rd, 1944. Growing strain in Germany. The German home front was under severe and increasing strain throughout the year. It has experienced a crisis of confidence and emerged not without grave weakening. The hierarchy, both of the Wehrmacht and of the party, however, faced each phase of a worsening situation resolutely and dealt with it ruthlessly. The whole nation was ordered to go into mourning for Stalingrad, and the commemoration of the many dead was turned into an emotional orgasm, which was used to obscure a gross military blunder and to push out of the public mind an even grosser prophecy by Hitler. More practical measures to meet the hard needs were not long delayed. Such misgivings were evidence of nervousness and uncertainty. There was more substantial evidence. Party members, for example, were ordered to wear their badges of membership. There was a purge of lukewarm members. Anyone, it was announced, who doubted a German victory would be sent to a concentration camp. And people were advised not to look defeatists. At Munich and other university cities, there were arrests and beheadings. Professor Huber of the University of Munich being one of the Gestapo's victims. Significant, above all, was Hitler's appointment of Himmler, his first technician of terror, as Minister of the Interior. This took place after the dismissal of Mussolini from Italy, a hard and sudden blow to the mass of Germans. One indubitable cause of the changed feeling was the RAF offensive, formidably reinforced by the American Air Forces based on Great Britain. As Goebbels himself put it, Germany is learning what war means. The air terror, he said on another occasion, is the main source of our worries on the home front. The air war, Goring pleaded in extremis, has come as a surprise to me because I have always worked to humanize warfare. 
Throughout a disillusioning year, Hitler did not show himself to the German people as a whole and spoke rarely, but he received at his headquarters, place unspecified, a succession of Quislings, hirelings, and accomplices, Mussolini, shortly before his fall, among them. When Hitler did speak, he assured the Germans that retaliation for the air terror was being prepared. For the rest, he said that there would not be another November 1918, and in any case, he would not shed any tears over the German people if they failed to hold out a different note from that which the German people had been accustomed. By this point in the war, it's becoming very clear that Germany is facing an inevitable defeat. And as a result, their actions start to reflect this fact and maybe even a little bit of desperation. Um, we've spoken in previous episodes about the activity that has taken place within the camps and the ghettos, insofar as there's a great deal of movement happening amongst the Jewish prisoners. In our previous episode, 1943, we discussed how the ghetto had been liquidated and camps were beginning to be dismantled and erased from the landscape, and that Jewish people who were once held there had been murdered in greater numbers and at a faster pace, particularly through the employment of gas chambers. There are a lot of things at play in these decisions, and definitely a recognition of a coming reckoning for the Nazis that they're becoming aware of. Um, but before we dive in, I think we should track a little bit back into 1943 and speak about the Posen speeches. So it's interesting because the infamous Posen speech that is delivered by Himmler um, in October 1943 has attracted a tremendous amount of attention for, for the kind of awkward morality that he seems to be appealing to and this kind of sense of, of decency that he associates with those that committed the Holocaust. But in other ways, it also kind of seems to come from a perspective of sensing an end, right? There, there he is giving this talk, justifying past actions, and one cannot help but thinking that this comes at a moment where um, in many ways he possibly thinks that you know, the, the end, so to speak, is in sight as far as possibly the war is concerned or possibly as far as um, the, the Holocaust is concerned because he talks in past tense to have stood fast through this and except for cases of human weakness to have stayed decent that has made us hard so this has this Nazi morality of sorts that is perplexing for us but for the purpose of today's discussion it talks about something that has occurred and is over so in many ways, therefore, one could possibly think about this time between, let's say, roughly October 43 and now November, when Himmler orders to disassemble, actually, the, the gas chambers as being, you know, kind of the bookends to the story of the end. And I think in many ways, the, the oddity is if Himmler indeed speaks in past tense in 43, then he may have had at that moment already a more eminent end in sight. Now, between that and November 44, the dissembling of the gas chambers is over a year still out. And then obviously, ironically, from there until the actual end is still another seven months out or something or another. So the question is, and this becomes increasingly more difficult to discern with Himmler, what is he actually having in mind? I mean, 
coming back to the speech itself um, that he gives in Poznan, one of the other oddities is that he, you know, very openly talks here about the crimes that were committed. Um, so in lots of ways, it's something that in this kind of open format, the Nazis have not put out often. Uh, but at the same time, while he's giving this quote-unquote secret talk, he also ensures that there is a record of it. So there's something that I think he's understanding that is, from a particular perspective, historically significant of what he's doing, that he wants to preserve for, you know, for, for times to come, right? Otherwise, you don't give a speech and record it. Um, so then there's both him conceding that maybe something has happened and is completed to have stood fast, past, but also something that is still relevant about this for the future, hence the speech and hence the record. So it's another kind of anticipation about what is relevant for the future. But then neither of them has any meaning because everything seems to continue all the same. There is no end in sight um, as far as the next 12 months are concerned. If anything, 44 is marked by an extreme um, height of, 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 of mass killing in Auschwitz-Birkenau partly brought on by the often noted uh, mass deportation of Hungarian Jews that result in this in this in endless amounts of trains that are arriving in Auschwitz. But that's not the only reason why Auschwitz is almost overstretched in terms of its capacities. The other reason is that the Nazis, very mindfully of what is occurring at the war, are emptying the other, uh, other camps. So you see new waves of um, deportations, for example, from Theresienstadt. You see, you know, intensified deportations from the Netherlands, Westerbrook. You see increased deportations also from Drancy. So in lots of ways, they seem to be very mindful of, of assuming that Auschwitz will not be accessible for much longer. And therefore, they are now, so to speak, deporting toward Auschwitz, which, however, means when Himmler ultimately announces the dismantling of the gas chambers in Auschwitz, that is maybe not the end. Even though often, you know, when you Google the, the talk, it's often, you know, described as the ordering of the halt of the final solution. But then you think, was he really ordering the halt of the solution? A, he didn't have the authority to do that. I mean, that would, would have gone beyond what his, you know, power in the Third Reich would have been without Hitler's explicit um, support. But more importantly, why do you empty all the other interior camps if this is supposed to be the end, right? That makes no sense. So if you're thinking that you have collapsing front lines on the east, eastern front, and possibly on the western front, why are you emptying the, the, the camps in the interior that presumably you're going to control a little bit longer? And so there, there's really not, even at this point, I would argue he's actually not so much ordering the halt of the, of the final solution as a kind of once again, as we discussed last time when we looked at 43, a kind of move from the east to the west. And therefore, there is an interesting document about the uh, dismantlement of the gas chambers that presupposes that um, the bits and bobs were supposed to be transported um, to the interior of the Reich to be reassembled. Um, in Ravensburg in particular. So this, in lots of ways, is a geographic 
shift possibly again, just like they had occurred one from the death camps, like Trevinka and Sobibor toward Auschwitz-Birkenau. Now there's another one that seems to be occurring from Auschwitz toward the other camps, of which there are still many. I mean, this is the irony. We think of, of this already as the end, but by January of '45, the Third Reich still controls a good many large camps, Mauthausen, Dachau, Bergen-Belsen, and many other subcamps. They are also still controlling massive amounts of prisoners. So what is difficult for us to kind of understand is where's the end, and at what point do they realize that the end is actually in sight? Or at what point do they simply try to continue their, their work but under changed circumstances? You highlighted earlier when speaking about the speech that the significance of this is the change in mentality, the speaking in the past tense, the recognition of culpability and the, the need for defense by trying to defend their actions on a moral ground in some twisted sort of logic. But I think that that's the significance here is that there's this change in mentality. There's this recognition that they are drawing closer to an end. There is going to be an end because if we look at propaganda, if we look at speeches that are made earlier on in the war, there's this, this belief of the thousand year empire. There's this belief that this is going to be enduring. This is going to be something that, you know, lasts for a very long period of time. But here we're starting to see the recognition that that's not going to happen. Very well put, but let me argue with you. Let's continue one more time with our infamous speech. Um, hear Himmler, and you know, just continuing from the part that I just um, cited just a moment earlier, he then continues and looks back at the war at home, the air raids, under bombing raids and hardship and deprivation of war. He references, so in other words, air raids on German cities. But then, interestingly enough, he references now the First World War and says, if we were still to have the Jews in every city as secret saboteurs, agitators, and insiders, if the Jews were still lodged in the body of the German nation, we would probably by now have reached the stage of 1916 and 1917. So interestingly enough, in his big justification now, the two things are coming together. So why were Germans defeated in the First World War? Ultimately, it was blamed upon Jews, right? This was part of Nazi propaganda. How do you avoid being defeated in the Second World War? You've killed all Jews, and so therefore you are not having to deal with that again. And so therefore, in many ways, it's a way of justifying now from a larger historical perspective one's action, but in many ways suggesting that defeat may therefore not come. Or defeat can also take on different forms. I mean, there's probably a sense that they are conceding defeat on the Eastern Front, but there are still very much, I think, even now in 44, even in November or December of 44, thinking very much as possibly being able to control the interior of the Reich, meaning to hold the boundaries of what is Germany and Austria. It's at this point, I mean, for uh, many American listeners, that the Germans are going to inflict the largest casualties upon the Americans in the so-called Battle of the Bulge. So they're far from from over in, in that respect. So I think that's really interesting how now all of a sudden the quote-unquote memory of the First World War is utilized as a way of justifying both the Holocaust but also to reassure his 
his soldiers in front of him that they will possibly still be victorious already, at least to defend themselves. I would like to counter that, but I think it, it's, it shows a mentality of a power that's being backed into a corner. And because they're being backed into a corner, they're having to think of things differently than how they previously would have approached them. Our article that we have chosen for this episode highlights that, in particular, talking about how German people were not even allowed to have a defeatist attitude. They weren't even allowed to to mention the idea of Germany's defeat for fear of being put into a concentration camp. So that, to me, speaks the attitude of a power that recognizes that the end is near and that they all hands must be on deck. We must do everything that we can in order to prevent this defeat from occurring. But if all ha if defeat is imminent and yet you call upon all hands on deck, what are you still trying to accomplish? I think they're still trying to accomplish their mission, but now they're having to change the ways in which they accomplish that mission by pulling back their their geographic um, ambitions. Right. So maybe in, in many ways right now they are reducing the, you know, it's not any longer the, the attempt to reorder Europe's map but to retreat into the interior and at least to hold on to, to that space as much as they can. Right. And it's, in a sense, picking and choosing what of their goals they're going to accomplish in the time that they have left. Very well put, because in many ways, one of the things that um, we're going to follow as we are moving into 45 is, is a kind of strange continuation of the Holocaust, because what we see now at that really tail end of the ends in 45 is that the Nazis become preoccupied with routing their existing prisoners from the east to the west. In other words, as the camps are being you know, dismembered in Auschwitz, they are putting everyone on these death marches to bring really these various prisoners to the interior of the Third Reich again, or the German Reich rather. Thank you again, Dr. Romer, for this um, very interesting discussion on this uh, particular event in 1944. And we will see you all again next episode. We will leave 1944 behind and return one more time with the very far last year with 1945. This podcast is hosted by a team of dedicated faculty and research assistants at the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies. You can learn more about our work and find upcoming events at our website, www.ackerman.utdallas.edu.